local artist who was the talk of Art Basel in Miami last year is gearing up for this year's show. Mm, Allison Morris hung out with Peter Tony this week. She is here with a preview of his fabulous work. Hi, guys. Yeah, oh, <laughs> what a dream to hang out with Peter Tunney and get a little preview of Art Basel. I first met Peter early last summer at his gallery in Tribeca. That was about six months after Art Basel in Miami, and people were still talking about his show, which took over the beach. Welcome to D Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Coides. On this very special episode, we step into the world of Peter Tunney. Okay, all right, sounds good. Let me grab Peter. But I put the pictures up on my idea board to show people this is how it happens. This is my most successful thing. Right now, that's one of my favorite commissions I've ever done, and it's going to inform the next 20 paintings I make are all going all season. I got to go. I'm on a live podcast. All right. Thank you. Bye. Peter, you're going to do it with these headphones on my computer because your iPad doesn't have a headphone jack. Good. And you want to just watch my phone while I'm away? All good. You can put your earpiece in. You got it. You want, um, I'm going to lay down pins with machine. Yeah. She can yeah. do Chad Dotsigans now. They're going to be white. You got They're it. They're going to be tight. All right, Paul, here's Peter. Nice thank to meet you. you. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Peter. Aloha. Hey, thank you very much for doing this. And I'm hoping that uh, we can uh, do something a little bit different yes, today. Right. So thank you very much. Well, my great pleasure. Uh, my coffee and an ashtray, please. And I'm ready to go. Okay. Can Can you do me a favor? Maybe just yep. tell us for the record where you are and maybe just describe what's around you right now for the are, for the audio listeners. Are, are we live right now? We're recording. Oh, okay, cool. So we're ready to go, right? Yes. Good. Well, this is Peter Tunney. Rhymes with funny. It's not Tooney. I make Tunney money. That's how you know. Um, I'm sitting in my studio in the Wynwood Walls. My studio is a 5,000 square foot, one story, windowless cinder block warehouse in the middle of the Wynwood Walls. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, windowless cinder block warehouse in the middle of the windwood walls i've been in here for 10 years i've been in here for the last 11 months largely by myself i used to have 10,000 people a day on average visit the studio thousands of people coming in and out all the time i've been here by myself for 11 months and it has been by far the most amazing productive creative peaceful soul healing time that I have ever had. So let me ask you then, we're dealing with a global pandemic. Obviously some things are changing in your life. Do you think art still matters in 2021 when we're worried about the economy and vaccines and political unrest? Well, that's such a great question. That could be our next three hour iPad. The short answer to that is yes, obviously. How about more than ever? How about we've stripped away a lot of the bullshit and now we're down to like human kindness, human expression and art. That's it. Do you think the pandemic or how has the pandemic 
changed your worldview in the last year? Has it? You know, you know, we couldn't have rehearsed this, Paul, because here's my favorite question I've had during the pandemic. Oh, how have the protests and the pandemic, um, how has that affected your artistic expression? Here's my easy answer, and then I'll let unchanged, dude. I'm unchanged. I'm doubling down. I'm validated. I'm doing more. I'm not changing anything. And I could I could illustrate that in a very good way. If you look at all the billboards I have up in New York City, I think I have about 60 something billboards up in New York City now. They say, say six of each, don't panic, remain calm, courage, mindful, two words with two L's, um, gratitude, change the way you see everything in the city of dreams. Those are my messages. When they were marching over the Williamsburg Bridge during the George Floyd protest time, this big word illuminated behind all those protesters that said courage. It's the only word you see. It's the only thing you see lit up. Those messages, so many people, Paul, have called in and told me, it's amazing you're putting up these messages during this difficult time. We really need it. It's like, dude, they've been up for 10 years. Right. You know right. what's happened? You're catching up. Because now you're home alone and you're dealing with stuff and you realize what really matters. It's just stripping away. And so I am unchanged. I am just supercharged. I'm 59 years old. I've been doing this every day since 1987. My studio has 20 tables in it with 20 different, totally different projects, one at every table and one on deck next to it and a vision board next to that with about 5,000 years of work on it. And I just come in here and tear it up every day. And what's amazing is, like, I'm not making that up. <laughs> you know what I'm like. I can't believe I'm not out of energy. It's the most energized I've been, the best work I've been making. And it all came when everything shut down. When everything slowed down. My life recalibrated. And amazingly, I found the time and space to be who I'm supposed to be. Do you see your... Do you see yourself going back? You've you've entered into this, um, I wouldn't call it a solitary time, but certainly a self-reflective time where you've had this kind of psychic and physical space to to sort of expand. Do you see this being the way forward? I, I, it's kind of like when the Beatles stopped performing live, they actually entered into their most creative period ever. Is there, a, is there some sort of correlation here in terms of how you see your work? I for sure am in my most creative period ever and my most quality creative period. There was a time I made a lot of stuff, but it's all bullshit. It's probably in someone's dumpster. But um, what I'm making now, it's so clear. My vision is so clear. I'm not bragging, but you know, I spent 25,000 hours or more doing collage and making word painting. So according to Malcolm Gladwell, I'm like a 2.5 expert, right? So I have deft ability in what I'm doing. I'm absolutely free and fearless. That's happened to me this last week. I posted on Instagram the other day, I'm free. I think it's the best painting I've ever made. I don't know why it happened that day after all this time, but I feel completely liberated. It's almost like if someone came to me secretly, like George Burns as God and said, Peter, you have seven days to live, but you can't tell anyone. <laughs> and you live that. And that's what I'm living now. And so, yeah, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. Could I be broke, homeless, have hit with catastrophe? Anything could happen to me. But today, 
I, I think this might be the best it ever gets for me. This day, not yesterday, this day. And yesterday was awesome too. My last 200 days have been escalating where I'm at the point today where there's so much gratitude. I have so much gratitude for everything. It sounds so corny, but like, I just want to keep paying it forward so maybe I could keep it rolling for another day, you know? There's a great expression. It says, the only way a good Irishman can enjoy any success is if he's just certain that tragedy is lurking right around the corner. <laughs> and that's where I am, baby. I know it's lurking out there, so I'm going to suck the marrow out of this day and get as much as I can. I'm running to the golf course, jumping in the sea, coming back in here, throwing paint all over, blasting my childhood records. I'm just in it, man. I'm just in it. And without looking like a total nut job, I really can't be any more in it. My studio looks like a beautiful mind. I've never seen anything like this. I've never even met anybody who operates like this. I know every artist there is, and I've been to their studios. It's not like this, bro. There's <laughs> Well, you know, great leaders are, are a product of their times and vice versa. And I think there's a, certainly a lot of chemistry that reverberates both ways. And, and I, when I look at your work, there's a great sense of what I'm going to describe as some sort of an American, a great American nostalgia overall in your work, uh, almost like a love letter <coughs> in a way. Is that an accurate way to talk about your work? I mean, is there something special about Americana or America that uh, you think has some magic and that's why you um, focus on that? Well, I'm going to say, um, you know, the answer is yes, but I don't think more so than in Beirut or in Nairobi or anywhere else. I don't really believe that I could lobby for New York. I call New York the city of dreams because me and Ralph Lauren had our dreams made in New York City. We came from nothing and we made it, right? So like New York, I was always very New York centric. Um, I'm a little bit in love with Miami right now because I just did a year here and it was just awesome every day. It's, it's like living at a resort every day. It's amazing. So I think the nostalgia part is the important thing you touched on. You know, I'm surrounded by my whole life here. It's like watching your life pass before your eyes every day. I, I see pictures of me when I'm five years old and my son is five years old. I'm gonna blink my eyes. My son's gonna be 25 years old like all my friend's sons are. And I wanna capture that. I wanna capture that lightning in a bottle. I just wanna preserve it. I used to be annoyed I was surrounded by so much stuff. I'm very comforted by being surrounded with all the evidence of this life. You know, if they killed me today in this chair and you go to heaven or whatever kind of play you want to make it, you know, everyone would be sitting around and God would be there. And he'd like, how'd you like that, Tony? How'd you like those 59 years, motherfucker? Check that out. And everyone would be like, dude, you got dealt like the craziest card. I got the Joker in the deck. He just dealt me the most insane 59 years you could ever imagine. Just unbelievable journey. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Do you believe in karma? Are you a karmic? I do. I very much so. That's what I was saying before about you want to just do as much good shit as you can to preserve the moment you're in so everything doesn't turn to shit. And by the way, karma shawarma is what I want to say. Here is what <laughs> I'm going to tell you. When you do stuff that you know is bad and you walk over the line and just say, you know what, fuck it, I'm just gonna do. Bad shit happens to you. That's what happens. 
your your work i've often described it to myself anyway as uh, it just reminds me as a bit of a time machine sometimes you're layering time periods and, and points of reference in the in the universe in a single piece of work and uh i'm seeing evidence of your existence sort of you know then and now how how has parenthood changed that for you do you do you see it a bit differently or more intensely now sort of your time on this planet well i have one word for parenthood for me fucking terrifying <laughs> i mean it's just terrifying i mean they just give you this kid and say okay bye go home no instructions i'm just holding this baby in like some car seat i can't even put in my car because it's impossible I got to feed this guy, keep him alive for the rest of my life. Mind-blowing. So I know everyone went through that. Um, it's been obviously for me, um, my wife, my kids, that scene, those little angelic crazy monkeys. They're two and five years old now. My son Art is five. My daughter is Sonnet, S-O-N-N-E-T, like Shakespeare Sonnet. Um, I just blasted out a Shakespeare sonnet in scraffito. That's when you carve into the paint with the back end of the brush. It's a great word called scraffito. My recent painting, after I paint it, before I peel up the letters, I just blast something out in scraffito. And I blasted out yesterday Shakespeare. And it said, before a joy proposed, behind a dream, all this the world well knows, yet none knows well. To shun the heavens, that leads men to this hell. Shakespeare sonnet CXXIX that's why I carved in there and I'm just carving stuff like that like every 15 minutes off the top of my head fearlessly I thought I was writing that the other day and I wrote something from Paradise Lost but past who can recall or done undo take that take those two to the bank how about all this the world well knows yet none knows well huh no big words in there we all know what to do. We can't do it. That's the human condition. So uh, what was your what was your question? Well, again? actually, I almost got there. No, you've led me to another question because a lot of your work, you know, you talk about the human condition, and it's you know you're you're you can't escape talking about I guess the the eternal disposition of politics in your work. I mean, do you find your work is political? I mean, it's commentary, but is it political? I try to be completely avoid politics i try desperately it's gotten harder because politics is like the blob that ate the whole neighborhood now you know what i mean <laughs> like it's suddenly like what nancy pelosi had for breakfast is the most important thing that we're tuning in on and what they're doing for the last two weeks i've been on kind of like a news blackout and for the last three months my tv stopped working and the company that comes we kept me so i just had no tv in my house um, I do see my news feed and stuff, but I didn't watch any cable news, no CNN, no Fox, no nothing. And last night I got it working and I put on um, Anderson Cooper. And I was so engaged at certain moments over the last four or five years of, of flipping back and forth from CNN to Fox. Just, just absolutely fascinated by how they would be reporting on the same event from diametrically opposed points of view, right? And I was just fascinated by that and I was tuned in. You know what I was doing? Wasting my fucking life. Because I did a lot of stuff in the last two weeks. I've just been under deadline, bullets, live things, appointments, things I have to do, painting, deadlines, being with my kids, making sure they don't drown in the pool, um, you know, 
uh, relating with my wife and people that work. I've just been just on max, max, max. And that's like going from like 7 a.m. every morning until like 1 or 2 a.m. every night, maybe doing emails till 3 a.m., putting my head down for five hours, sleep when my head hits the pillow, wake up, drink water, coffee, deal with everyone, go do it again. I, I've really been hitting it hard. And um, I missed all the news and everything. What I realized is once you miss it for a couple of weeks, you don't even give a shit. I, I... Yep, I, I think it seems a- crazy. They're making they're making me drink their Kool-Aid. I'm not interested. So I do have some commentary. I mean, my favorite piece I made, and I'm going to burn up another 90 seconds of your podcast. Sorry, you could edit it out if it's recorded. But I just finished a piece. It says batshit crazy over all the headlines. I posted it a couple of days ago if you care seeing it. You also see me making it really free. I use like a gallon of black paint. Some places it's two inches high on the canvas over a herringbone pattern of all the headlines. What I was thinking about is this. It was like some 20 guys in China that worked for a lab. Eh? They said, you know, you got to go into this cave. You know, no one's ever been there. It's 450 miles up this road. You got to climb in there. Wear hazmat suits. You're going to spelunk down. Yeah, it's really dangerous. We never, we're going in the deepest, darkest cave we've ever been to collect guana, which is bat shit, from horseshoe bats. Horseshoe bats are about, their body is about the size of your thumb. They're so voluminous in certain places in the world, bats, people don't realize. I read something the other day about like the biomass of bats or the species number is the most of any. And <clears throat> the bats are just so many in that cave, you can't imagine. We've never been in there. In fact, no human has ever been in there because no caveman ever went in there. He couldn't get there. You need a rope, a hazmat, and no one's going to go down there in their right mind. Here's my point. They go in there to harvest the weirdest bat shit that never has interacted with human beings. And I am telling you and your listeners for nefarious purposes, no one goes in to collect that stuff to never use it. You don't build an atom bomb to not drop it. There was a great psychological piece written about the atom bomb. I think the title of it was like a CIA white paper. It was called big boys like big toys and they want to use them. And so you go in there and they get this 20 liters of, horseshoe bat shit and they drive their econoline van or whatever back to their lab they could be hit by a drunk driver right maybe go off the road and end civilization as we know it's spilling the shit into the air and then somehow it leaked out intensely not intentionally maybe a guy working at the lab was drunk it doesn't matter and now we have coronavirus around the world in multiple strains well let me tell you what that is that's bat shit crazy that's literally bat shit crazy And that's why you shouldn't go in the cave. Go build a school, assholes. What are you doing in there? What are you doing in there? You you, you talk about the atom bomb and in many ways, your artwork can be a bit bit of a cultural or atom bomb, you know, in, in terms of how it changes people's minds and perceptions. Are you hopeful for tomorrow? I mean, in America, around the world, I know you're an optimist, but are you hopeful? All right, I'm going to correct you. I'm not an optimist at all. I am just shocked. I'm not appalled. I'm just kind of in disbelief of how badly human beings have acted since we've started recording their activity, period. I could make the case easily, and I would debate anyone, that this is the greatest moment ever in human civilization. You know, I might pick April 1992, I was in Paris. Everything was cool then. It was pre-9-11. There was a little run there. It wasn't better in the 60s. It wasn't better in the 20s. It's all nonsense. It's amazing today, right? 
But I'm gonna correct you. I'm not an all-in optimist. I'm an elated pessimist. <laughs> I, I don't think any of this shit is gonna work out well. You could lose three billion people. You know, it's the most unpopular thing to say. Imagine if you had some big play that took out a third of the world's population. I, what are you gonna do, complain? You're gonna hope you're one that lives and you're gonna go get in that day that I've been describing. Nothing's ever gonna change. You know, there's a, there's a supernova like seven light years wide that exploded somewhere last week. There's no interest in the pandemic or TV or what you did. This is the only game in town. You are absolutely going to get what you give. No question in my mind. You want to pollute every waterway and ocean and fill it up with plastic, you will suffer the consequences of that. How could anybody even debate that? Of course you are. You want to pack 250,000 people into two buildings that are 100 stories high? That's too much stress on the land. That's going to bite you back. And we're just going too far. We're just insane. I'll tell you an insane decision for human beings. I had a guy once, he got arrested by the police, did everything that came to his house. He's a drug addict and alcoholic that was really deep in active addiction. He's okay today. And, uh, you know, he punched the cop in the face when they were arrested. He kicked out the back window. The cops beat the shit out of him. They threw him in jail. He's a nice guy. He's just on a bender, you know. And I talked to him in jail. I said, you know, listen, I can help you. We can get you out of there. Your family wants you back. Get four kids, by the way, um, little ones. Said so your family wants you back. Your wife wants you back. You're gonna have to go to rehab. They're gonna pay for it. We're gonna borrow the money. You're gonna get in a rehab. It's like thirty-five thousand dollars a month. You're gonna have a cushy thirty days, eating cereal, listening to a bunch of other dudes, and it may change your life. All sins will be forgiven, and you'll be back on top. You got nothing to do for thirty days. I suggest you take that. Uh, and here's your other choice. Tell me you don't want it. I'm going to hang up the phone right now and I'm never going to speak to you again. And probably neither is your family, dude. He said, fuck you, I'll do the time. And I think about that human being making that decision. We make that decision collectively every day. It's on the news. They brag about it. They're terrible decisions, terrible decisions. We're acting terribly. And amongst all that terrible behavior, me, one of the things I'm grateful for, I am surrounded by unbelievable, uplifting stories, human testimonials of just perseverance and courage beyond my pay grade. I just sent out 20 prints to some healthcare workers in New York. Uh, they say gratitude. They're on the sheet music of Amazing Grace. The head doctor at the hospital and I were talking. She was telling me, what it's like for these people that work for her. She's a very successful doctor. She described, because she knows them all by name. She works with them every day. They all go to work every day knowing they could get a fatal disease and die. Many of them are single parents that have a couple of kids at home. I just did COVID uh, three weeks at home. My wife was sick. No one came over. I had no help. I had two kids. I did not get sick at all. My wife is very sick. She was as sick as you could be and stay home, just face down every day, zero energy. Her symptoms, by the way, were fatigue and nausea, symptoms we dismiss as nothing. She couldn't get out of bed, dude, and if she did, she went and threw up. She had incredible body pains and migraines. Those were her symptoms, no respiratory. It was totally debilitating. For me to take care of the two-year-old, the five-year-old, her, walk the dog, I honestly couldn't do it. I think I failed. I got through it. 
but I didn't do what I, I don't know how you do that. How does that frontline nurse, she's been working, I mean, according to the, her boss, who I believe, they're doing like 18 hour days, six or seven days a week for 11 months. That's right. In, in brutal situations. I wear my mask for half an hour, I'm claustrophobic. They're triple masked, hazmat, just to take a pee. How do, they, how do they do it? And so that's like unbelievable human. I've seen it during hurricanes. I've seen it in Haiti. I've seen it in a lot of places, how people come together during a crisis. It's unbelievable. The only thing is we should kind of be like that all the time. Be nice to each other. Who's got the bandwidth for all this crazy, just unfounded hatred and vitriol that goes on every day? We can't go like that. We just can't. It would just be like we had a big meeting and we have 10 things to discuss on our agenda. But when we get in the meeting, we fight over the snacks and we have a fist fight in the room. We never even get to the first bullet point. That is exactly what's happening. That is a good way of describing it, actually. I, yeah. <clears throat> you've, you know, you've had um, like the Gordon Lightfoot song, this opportunity to kind of see life from both sides now. I mean, is there a big difference between the worlds of finance and the worlds of fine art? Speaking of the human human condition. Well, you know, listen, first of all, there's only one world. We're human beings and we live in it. I, For me personally, I, I mean, sure there is. One, you're doing deals and making money. The other one, you're doing deals and making money. There's one lens. Um, uh, here's another one. Um, you have some bad actors in the mix in both. And that's across the board. You know? So, so you I, for me, it's the same thing. I'll tell you what I did then and what I do now. I'm a storyteller. I would connect with people and I would tell them the story about me meeting the chairman of Amgen and how impressed I was with this guy and that we should invest in this company because any money under his control is better than under your control. Thousand percent. That's your man. Filled with integrity, amazing guy named George Rathman. He's kind of the founder of biotechnology in a way, but he started Amgen. So I would go tell my story about, I think, first of all, if their products work, and I think they will, it, you're gonna you're gonna change the landscape for so many people. They had a red, red blood cell stimulator and white blood cell stimulator is basically the easy way to say it. The white blood cells are called granulocytes. Their product was called granulocyte macrophage stimulating factor, GCSF. For, and what that does is when you get chemotherapy and your hair falls out and you get diarrhea, you have all these side effects, that's because those chemicals, it's like napalming 20 acres to kill a mouse, right? That's chemotherapy. You get blasted with this stuff. So what this does is it helps your colonies of granulocytes so that you could tolerate more chemotherapy, not get so sick, get more therapy. They had like 90% market penetration the first year they went into market. Who's not gonna take GCSF with their chemo? Everyone's gonna take it, obviously, if it's safe. It's marketed under the name Nupagen. Amgen went from a $300 million company to a $130 billion company. Most of the people, I raised them, I was part of a team that raised them $80 million in 1985, I think. And we got 8% of their gross sales. We got warrants on the company. It was a $300 million company. Everyone that invested in that, I think you had to invest $100,000, made like $50 million. That's kind of the same as getting one of the greatest Andy Warhol car crash paintings for 5,000 bucks. And now it's 50 million. You tell the story of why. 
And what is the story? The story is not that this guy came on the scene yesterday and has a new gimmick. Or my story is a deep story. It's an unduplicatable story. George Rathman's story at Amgen was a deep story, an unduplicatable story. I bet on those people. I always bet on people. I've never bet on technology. And today, people are the weak link. Let's just say your boss is a real misogynistic uh, asshole. He walks around the office grabbing all the girls. Your company's going to go down like 90% if you don't straighten that out. So, so you're forced to behave in another way. So the, the difference for me, it's the same thing. I'm telling stories. I tell stories. I, I tell stories to everyone. But when you tell stories to people that can afford your products, then they buy your products. And then your product doesn't fall apart. You follow up with them and you service them. That's what I've been doing my entire adult life. I'm a salesman. We recently interviewed some of the original team from the early days of Apple and the Macintosh and uh, General Magic who had this creative bubble where they developed what kind of runs the world now in terms of mobile phones and yeah. just the, the designs that they had. Do you think then that, and I think I know what the answer is, but there, there's, there, there's no incompatibility with creativity and business then? These things can coexist nicely or how do you how do you look I, at that world? You know, I don't like the mundane business world. I'm not the right guy to run your paperclip factory in Queens because those are just monetary. How many units did you sell? What are your costs, right? So I've never been a very cost conscious guy, so I'm, I'm not good at that. Um, you know, if you have a big innovation today, you can score really big. Jonas Salk invented polio vaccine. He was my business partner, friend, and really the light of my life. I was so lucky to intersect and collide with this guy. And in the short time we were together for a few years, we spent a lot of time together. Um, just, just what a thinker, what a giant, you know, he didn't, I mean, polio, if you think this pandemic or HIV is really bad, think about what polio is. That's infant paralysis. You finally have the baby with your wife, but it's never going to move. It's going to live in an iron lung in like a giant warehouse somewhere for its entire life. The moment you have your baby. Wow, that's, that's pretty hardcore. That's pretty hardcore. Jonas Salk solved that problem. And they asked him, you know, why didn't you patent that? And his answer is famous. He said, you can't patent the sun, can you? And he just gave that away. Could you imagine if you were the individual that cracked the coronavirus today? An individual person and you owned it? You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to immediately make like $10 billion. And by the way, <laughs> well worth it. But we live in a different way where everyone is fighting over all this IP and this proprietariness and who invented what. And many times the inventor is not the guy who gets the reward, right? McDonald's and a million other stories. Most scientists I know that invented the thing, the rat's tail turned blue in their lab, but they did not get it. Some hedge fund guy who put 50 million in the company made the billion dollars, you know? Very few scientists we know. There are a few, but they're the Michael Jordans and the Tom Brady's of the world. There's two of those. There's 10 million guys that aren't going to make it. And so <clears throat> the, 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 the rush and the grab and the greediness that's baked in the cake is 
kind of gross, right? But what's fueled is a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity. One word I want to make sure we talk about in all this, because I brushed over it, it was like 17 thoughts ago, is hope. And I think when people come in here now and see my scene and know my track of life, there has to be hope in that. Like if I did this, basically anyone could do anything. Anyone could do anything. You know, I ridiculously, being a demented, drug-addled person, declared myself an artist in 1987. I left my firm, Payne Weber, because I didn't need them anymore to do my financial things and I was gonna make a lot of money and I did. And I left and I declared myself an artist. I remember I was living across the hall from this failed pants designer at the time. His name is John Varvatos. He's a good friend of mine to this day. And I said, John, I'm gonna be an artist now. And he was like, well, what are you gonna make? I didn't know you make artists. No, no, I don't make art, but you know, it's gonna be great. I could, I could smoke weed indoors. I could wear my pajamas to dinner. It's gonna be great. He's like, but don't you have to make some artists? I'll figure something out. That was my entire thesis. And I rolled with that. Really, that's the, that's the most interesting part of my whole story. Why would I make that stupid decision? Everyone I left that worked for me then is today a billionaire. They just kept doing what they did and amassed huge amounts of money and their kids went to colleges and they have all that. And I didn't do any of that. And so I made this decision and I have held hard to be an artist since 1987. It's like 34 years. And so there's so much hope in that model. I mean, I definitely should have died on drugs. I definitely should have overdosed. I definitely should have been in fatal car accidents. I mean, there's so many just things like that that are just, you know, game killers. But here I am with these two lovely kids and this beautiful wife sitting in this beautiful mind studio making gratitude paintings. Well, if that can happen, I assure you, anything can happen. Anyone who's listening to this can drop what they're doing, do their dream job, and just muddle through it. Just muddle through it. And I shouldn't have even muddled through it. E even in Wynwood, coming here the first year, it was just a money-losing proposition. I liked it. I liked it. I liked nobody here. I liked the bad neighborhood. I liked riding around with no shirt on, smoking a cigar, getting harassed. I loved the vibe here. It was so authentic and real. And I love the vibe here now, but it's different. Um, this has been a fascinating uh, masterclass on many levels, and, and I, we have time for one last question and a final thought, and I think uh, apropos of what we just talked about. How, uh, how do you want to be remembered? Do you think about your legacy ever? It's so funny, because in one of my books, when I did my um, Taj Mahal show, I made a piece in a really ornate gold mirror. It's called Gift to the POTUS. It's my gift to Donald Trump. He couldn't accept it because he can't take gifts. It was a really elaborate gold mirror and I just had text on it. It said, how do I want to be remembered? And I just made another one today because the guy saw that somewhere and asked me about it. So I, was, I have one in my studio. I have two mirrors. One says, how do I want to be remembered? And the other one says, can you love yourself? These are two really good questions. How do I want to be remembered? You know, my glib answer would be, you know, the greatest artist that ever lived <laughs> today. I don't even really care how you remember me. I care how you are. Maybe you remember me as this fantastic guy that helped your kid or something. Maybe you remember me as the asshole that lit your house on fire. I don't know. Um, 
I, I don't really care. I, here's, here's my answer to that. Reputation is a shadow. Character is the real thing. And I would like, I would like to think that I have honor and I've honored my word. I don't know if I'm not definitely not going down as father of the year. I, don't, I barely even know how to be a father. I try. I love my kids so much. I, I, I'm not talented enough to be a great father. Everyone says, oh, you're a great dad. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Who knows? We'll see where it goes. And so I just, you know, it, I think the thing that I'm standing for, Paul, is all things are possible. Open your mind. Hope is the big driver. I'm so hopeful every day. I thought I would really lose my hope. I'm not. I'm, I'm still an elated pessimist. I don't think everyone's, I don't think you're going to stop drunk driving tomorrow. I don't think you're going to stop sex trafficking. I don't think you're going to stop a lot of stuff. That's all going to go on. It's gone on since the beginning of time. The hopeful thing is, how will you perform your role during that stuff? That's the key. And I'd like to be remembered as a guy who really tried hard really tried hard and went out swinging. Okay, I think that's a, a beautiful thought and a big idea. And once again, I want to thank you, Peter Tunney, for the time and I've got to say for a tremendous masterclass. So thank you very um, much. How long was the interview? Pardon? How long did we just talk for? That was roughly about 35 minutes. That felt like two minutes to me. And that proves my point. Time flies. Be careful with it. A good way to exit. Thank you, Peter. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Bye. I, I love the colorful clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair I hear the sound of a gentle on the wind that lifts her perfume through the air I'm picking up good vibrations